morning. Today's uh, we are going to meditate on First Corinthians chapter nine. The chapter nine is actually part of Paul's answer to the questions written in Corinthian Christians' letter to Paul, and this section in chapter eight and chapter nine and chapter ten. Is about what to do when it comes to the meat, food offered to the to to the idols. Um, first of all, I think we need to have a, just a little bit of context, and always to hurry our application too soon. To mean it means that we will read into the text and take the application in more man-centered and, quite frankly, me-centered way. So let's hear the Word of God in the context. In chapter 9, in general, if we look at the two main things that Paul is doing. Paul is providing an example from uh, his own life his own apostolic ministry. What example is it? It's an example of the general principle that he just provided in, at the end of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 13 reads, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. To po- say it positively is, the general principle of practicing Christian freedom or rights is to gladly give up our own rights to build up others in love. It is not knowing and be concerned about our conscience being free only. And that was the very much of a uh, problem that they had. The people who were knowledgeable enough to know that idols don't exist. So the food offered to idols is not defiled, it's meaningless. So why not? We could feel free to eat it. But the people who have years of experience of idol worship and Aphrodite's to, to temple the, even the humongous stature of uh, Aphrodite's was the the, uh, the figure or what symbolic things, cultural, religious symbolic things about what Corinth is all about. For them, it is violating their own their their conscience of faith. If I eat the meat that offered, isn't that mean that I participate in idol worship? I know mentally and emotionally, I mean the, the uh, head knowledge wise what they are saying is true and I know that but in my conscience I feel utterly violated. So in that sense knowledge puffs up Paul said but the love but love Builds up. And Paul's not against knowledge per se. An incomplete knowledge, the knowledge without love, knowledge about God, but knowledge not without the knowledge of God who is loving, is problematic. And Paul's saying. So remember uh, last Sunday, I shared the fact that seemingly this simple problem. Paul takes three chapters to answer it. And to our benefit, especially to our benefit, you know why is that? We don't have problem or controversial issues when it comes to food offered to idols. No one asks that, and it's irrelevant. But if you take that principle, what Paul is giving in chapter 8, and nine, as he's an example, 
an example from Israelites in the wilderness. And conclusion, we could apply every section of, uh, of the Christian life. And today, um, we're faced with this radical example Paul presents to us. God worked on my heart. And this is one of the most um, challenging and should I even say convicting passage? So countercultural. But as, as we meditate on this, let's remember that the last thing that we want to do is write Paul off as someone who is different, totally different. So he's a spiritual giant. Only special kind of people like Paul would do that. No, Paul's example is this is a principle by which we need to live our Christian life. Once again, I'm saving for later. His final punchline is actually 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. And to get to that, he builds up this as well. So he in one sense, chapter 9 is he's just merely providing real-life example from his own ministry. Number two, alongside of the deeper undercurrent issue is defense. He's defending his apostolic authority and right. And sadly enough, Paul, who was going extra miles for these people who didn't know Christ, who were lost in idol worship and worldliness and, and sexual immorality. Paul came into town with, along with Barnabas during the first, cent, uh, first uh, missionary journey. Many of them come to know Christ through the Paul's gospel. But undertone of all the problems that they had. And even this goes on to the second Corinthians as well. This is this questioning Paul's authority. Is he really apostle? Or if he's apostle, is he secondary kind of apostle? Does he lack apostolic authority? Does he really have a right? So, actually, emotional tone to it is because of this, his vigorous defense. He's not really defending his apostleship because he doesn't, he's not an insecure person per se, but he's defending his authority and right, crystal clear enough that no one can deny it and then this becomes his problem I mean his example which makes that even more radical so there are two uh, confusions or misunderstandings that uh, Corinthian Christians had about Paul the first one was a meat-eating. They're confused. Paul sometimes seems like he's eating. And sometimes all of a sudden he doesn't eat. And they call that as a vacillation that disqualifies Paul from being an apostle. Apostles should know exactly what he's doing and what he's supposed to do and become consistent in it. But Paul, depending on situation, he had no problem eating. And everybody, um, some people might think that he knows that it is the meat being offered, having been offered to the idols. But he's eating with no problem. In another situation, he doesn't eat. Wait a minute, he ate. What's, go what's going on? How come he doesn't eat? So even authority-wise, 
Paul actually addressed this probably when he was there. But they really didn't listen to him because of his, their questioning his uh, apostolic authority. And it could, uh, it makes sense. Remember that point, that he drives that point, and if you know this undercurrent confusion issue, the passage will become alive. Question number two, or the confusion number two, is Paul didn't receive financial support from the Corinthian church. He didn't ask for it. And they end up thinking, yeah, I think Paul's different, kind of weird. Cephas, he takes his believing wife. And that's why this, because of this passage, people think that uh, Peter, the Cephas is a remic name, another name, meaning same name. Maybe he did visit it with his wife. And other apostles were supported fully financially, and they're provided, they're taken care of. But Paul came into town with Barnabas, not only didn't ask for it, and when they tried to give them something, he said, no thanks. I don't need your financial support or money in that sense. So, I don't know, in our, in our culture, anyone who, any, any congregation will doubt that and don't like that. They go, oh, that's great. You don't need one. But uh, instead of admiration and respect and gratitude, they use that as a suspicion. Because he's kind of secondary. Uh, he's not like Peter. chief disciple of the twelve. Or he's not like a James, the brother of Jesus, brother of our Lord, or Jude. So they were considered as apostles, powerful apostles. As a matter of fact, because of James's godliness and character and authority, along with the fact that Jesus was his half-brother, the representative of Jerusalem church was not Cephas, was not Peter, but James. James was the pastor of Jerusalem church, per se. So, remember these two, two things. He's trying to provide example from his life. And on, on the other hand, he's trying to make a defense about his Apostolic authority and rights. So simply we're asking this question on which we could hang our thoughts. What defenses does Paul make to present himself as an example to follow in loving love principle? Number one, he makes a defense on his authority, apostolic authority, Verse 1 and 2, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. How come Paul didn't say, I am free. I am an apostle. I have seen the Lord. Uh, you are my workmanship. The tone of the whole chapter is a vigorous defense. That he makes arguments so strong that he uses all his skills. I mean, it's his incredible airtight presentation here. Systematic and first one and two is not even a defense at all, in some sense. It's an assertion. Don't you know I'm an apostle and I have the authority as an apostle? And notice that I counted, 
And there are 16 rhetorical questions to make a strong point in this chapter. The first strong point that he's making is assertion on his apostleship, apostolic authority. And uh, at this time, I think we need to clarify what is an apostle? The Greek, it, it's the Greek word from which we got the apostle. These days. It became a, like a title or position. But actually, apostolos means simply said, simply put, one who is sent. Or even simpler, sent one. Is what that means. In the first century... In biblical times, the word apostle was used in a very different ways, many different ways. For example, Crossway Church will send someone to East Asia. And this past summer, Stan and Jay were sent by the apostles, as an apostles uh, of Crossway Church. We could say that. And they have used that, even in the Bible also too. But what Paul is mentioning here is the apostles with capital A. The the ones that who are chosen by Christ and commissioned and sent by Christ directly. Why is that so important? And if you really listen to all kinds of teachings and New Age teachings and pseudo-Christianity teachings are going on, so they present different picture of Christian church. They present different Jesus. Which one is really right? The, the true Christianity, what it means to follow Christ is based on the scripture. right? The scripture has a supreme authority. But before all the New Testaments were formed, the apostles were walking scriptures. Why? They were... They have received the words of Jesus completely and fully empowered, and they're vested by the Christ's commissions. So they represented not just a little bit of authority, but full authority of Christ. They spoke the mind of Christ, if not the words of Christ. So, True Christianity is apostolic church based on apostles' teaching. So this is a big deal. In order to be an apostle, there are three or four requirements, typically the assessment that they did. The easiest one is one of the 12 disciples who spent three and a half years with Jesus. And the problem with Paul, the the suspicion came because Paul was not one of those 12. But do you, do you see this? Paul's mentioning with the two things here, twofold argument, that he has seen the risen Lord. It wasn't a hallucination. It was not vision. It was actually Jesus who was resurrected, showed up on the way to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And later, he uses, he's use, uses his uh, Greek name, Paul. And as he's groomed and tra- being trained, Jesus himself revealed himself and revealed his will. And much of the concept of church mystery was given to Paul. So that's why we got 13 books out of 27 books of New New Testament were written by Apostle Paul. And number two, I already mentioned that in in those revelations, Jesus was uh, a risen Lord and commissioned by him. And the second thing that he mentions, maybe the Jerusalem people, they might not believe me because I was used to be persecuting 
the Christians and not only took them to prison, but I persecuted two unto death. So they might have a problem receiving me. But you, Corinthians, you're the living proof. I have shared the gospel, and you have became followers of Christ, and you became the church in Corinth. Because of me, you are the seal of my apostleship, Paul is saying. So, there's probably the hushness in the room as the letter was being read. No one can deny that. And then he doesn't take a breath. He goes right on to another defense. This time, he's right as an apostle. What is right exactly? Along with other things, the main right that he's saying is to receive full financial support from Corinthian church. And in so doing, he said, oh, you know, just believe me. It is God's will. He doesn't say that. He actually systematically argues why and evidences in, through the nature to the Old Testament and application and the words of Jesus directly. Those three things. But let's read his words first. Paul writes in verse 3, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? That's his expression of full support, financial support. Do we not have the right to take along a believe, believing wife as do the other disciples and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some milk, some of the milk? Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law, Mosaic law, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material, material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we, do not we even more? His assertion about rights, as I mentioned, mainly about full financial support that he has. It is his uh, rightful claim that he could make. And moreover, his authority is as much as the other disciples and the brothers of Jesus, the Lord. And he's basically saying, whatever that they're doing, in other words, not only financial support me for, for me, but when we're traveling, Apostles were traveling with their wives. The whole family was supported. Do we not have that? And he goes on to nature first. It's common sense. And soldiers, these are the people who are actually soldiers who are working at a job. Like, you know, Cyril went to Japan, you know, he's not working, you know, McDonald's in Japan to support himself. U.S. Navy supports everything for him, including that nice uniform. 
makes me think about Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, those tap dance kind of. <laughs> and then he also mentions the Old Testament law. Do you, do you picture this? Do not muzzle an ox when the ox is working. The picture is this. The, the greedy people, the ox is, you know, your ox is doing the work for you. But muzzle the ox's mouth so that he cannot eat anything, the things that he dropped. So as he's grinding whatever that he's doing. And it became an Old Testament law. And then Paul's point is this. Do you think God is, has written this law just for the ox? It's for us too. It's for our people. It's for the ministers. It's for the people who are serving as a spiritual leaders as well. And he goes, it's a natural thing, the common sense. If you, if you work in a vineyard, wouldn't you want some vineyard? If you work for L, you see, the LA Fitness, you get a free membership, that kind of thing. Whether it's tending, farming, the same thing. So there's another hushness after people hear this reading of God's word. A reading of Paul's letter. Why? Because it's true. If he's really apostle, he has all the rights. This is a suspense and this is the, the radical things that the if you really open your heart and tenderly and teachably, it will mess you up in a good way. Because what do you what do you respect expect by this time? Therefore, beginning this month, you shall provide financial support. Grow up. I've been I've been treating you like a kid a little bit too much. Paul is not doing that. Rather than doing that, verse 13b, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, he puts another couple of things, evidences, illustration again, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings, Levites, right? Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who claim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He concludes with Jesus' command itself. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He feels very strongly. He would rather die than take that. But what is this ground for boasting? Remember, this boasting is not prideful things. It's boasting in, in the Lord. Boasting of the Lord. Boasting greatness of the Lord. He's actually doing that. But it is interesting. If you don't pay attention, you're going to miss it. Because it's so countercultural. This is paradoxical principle that Paul is throwing at us. As much as it's tangible. What is it? Verse 16. If, for if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting. That is my duty. For necessity is laid upon me. I got to do it. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Something bad will happen to me. Verse 17. If I do this of my own, my own will, I have a reward. But if 
not of my own will, am I, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. One way or the other, this is my duty, but if I choose to do it voluntarily with, um, he calls his reward, then I experience the reward. Choice is that. What then is my reward? We expect, in a pragmatic world, in American culture, we expect the words like this. What then is my word? He's going to say, treasures in heaven. That he will get the mansion in the house, in in heaven. No. That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not to full use of my right in the gospel. His reward is the right to give up his own rights. Did you hear me? His reward is I get to have this right to give up my own rights for full financial support. The question is why? That's a fourth point, so you gotta hang on for the rest. His ground for boasting is that he gladly gives up his rights for financial support for the sake of the gospel. This is the time that I began to feel a little disturbed in, in a good sense. For Paul, his God-centeredness is not a conceptual thing. That God and his gospel was so precious. And for the sake of gospel, his losing his rights was not actually losing, losing anything. But it, it, this becomes reward for him. Good thing for him. A little bit of uh, tinge of hint is there. Paul's sole focus is not on his gain, but Christ's gain for the gospel. And that is the reward Paul's after. I think we ought to really think about does God mean so much to me? Yes, yes. Is the end goal of my life? Or is he the means to my end? And God is powerful and God is good. And he can provide everything I need, everything my family needs. And more than that, Paul is completely convinced that God is the most desirable treasure and that his gospel is precious, more precious than anything else, that he could recklessly abandon himself. Uh, you know, he's not done yet, so I'm not done yet. Fourth defense. Oh, before fourth defense, a little bit of a uh, reminder from other passages. And Paul writes in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20. We get glimpses of that. Well, what is my, our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and, and joy. Do you, do you see this? Christ gain. Because of the gospel of Christ. People belong to Christ. And his gain is his reward and his joy. And the exceeding joy in God's series, we repeated this sentence over and over. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In this case, Paul is putting it a different way. 
we're most dissatisfied in God's glory when the God's glory gets the maximum results. Another paradoxical thing that he does do is he, he, explaining his goal. He defends his freedom to make himself a servant to all in order to win more for Christ. Remember the, the, the right that he was clinging onto is the right to give up his own rights. And this time, the freedom he's clinging onto is the freedom to be servant, freedom to be a slave to all. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I, may, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I, may, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. When he mentions the weak, it should register to our mind. Remember chapter 8? Who are the weak? The ones that who didn't have a knowledge, experiential knowledge. The ones that who had a weaker conscience. They couldn't eat. So when, we, when he was with those weak people, he didn't eat the meat. When he, was, when he was with the strong and Gentiles and people who really knew that experientially that idols don't exist, and he was free to eat. He wasn't going wish-washing. And even this passage misquoted and mistranslated, misapplied in our culture, who is crazy about, our, our culture is crazy about the relevance No, that's not it. It's not for the politician who could say yes to this person, yes to this person. Well, that person and that person is saying two different things. Which one do you really mean? I mean all. Why can't we get along? Paul has never done that. Paul has not given up and or compromised any theological convictions and principles of his conduct on the authority of apostle. He had that changeless core. And because of that, outside the changeless core, he was able to let go, not take himself too seriously at all, but take God seriously. Look at some of the examples that he, he wrote. I'm, like, I'm not like a Jew who's concerned about ceremonial law, but I became a Jew. So when, when they're traveling with Timothy, who's half Jew, especially mother's side, that's going to be an issue for the, to, to evangelize the Jews. So he had Timothy circumcised. in order to become like Jews and make that access easy to win some more. But another case, he's traveling along with Titus, who's completely Jew, I mean completely Greek, Gentile in other words. And the Judaizers, people who are traditionalists who became Christian, is saying, Titus, you ought to get circumcised in order to really enjoy the richness of tradition of God's law from the Old Testament down the law, down, down all. 
absolutely, Paul stood ground that you must not get you must not get circumcised because your salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. By getting circumcision, you're going to we're going to communicate to other Gentiles that they, that they might think that faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ is not enough. Faith and following those ceremonial laws and circumcisions. You see, you see this, right? And all the way down to when he mentioned the weak, and finally, it all makes sense now. Paul had solid biblical godly principles by which he conducted himself everywhere. That's what we ought to do. But I ask you this question, please. In what ways does this strike you? Honest feeling beyond understanding what Paul is saying is like, who am I a servant to? I'm so busy insisting my own rights and my right to be treated right. And that leads to, what does the gospel mean to you? What does God mean to you who is so concerned about the spreading of the gospel? Why should we go all the way to somewhere in East Asia for unreached people group? Why do boy and Cindy's young kids have to wear that strange uniform? You saw that on Facebook. And growing up there without, under Orange County, top class education for the sake of gospel. You see, it makes sense now, right? And I, I want to challenge you. Logic goes like this. If you really believe God is loving and God has the most wisest plan for you, his purpose is good, and his plan is the best, more than what you can come up with, far more than what we can come up with. And he's pointing to other things and see the value from this gospel, through this gospel. Would you surrender your rights? Not for the, for the point of making yourself better or wiser or more spiritual, but because you see the value in me. You see the value in the gospel of Christ. I think this will be on me for several weeks. Because you know, you know what? Pastors do have a hard job, although there are so many misunderstandings. So, so many, many, many of my friends, their marriage is broken because of mar- marital affair, because of sexual immorality in one way or the other, because of the fierce attack and disturbance of the evil one who doesn't want to see. I have many friends who used to be pastors, quit, never want to go back, done with it. Yes, we need to pray for the people like Paul. That we would follow Paul's example in this. That we see the value in it. Furthermore, it's not just a certain type of people. Any Christ follower who sees the value in the authority of Scripture, in your own life, you need to surrender your rights. 
but you do it on your own pace and on your terms. It doesn't have to translate into ministry. But it could be that neighbor next to you. It could be that co-worker. Are you being servant to them? But you're making sacrifice. You're humbled by them. Why? For the sake of Christ. For the sake of the gospel. That you could actually become a servant to all. I mentioned that it is actually for the sake of Christ and gospel. There are new trend, the cool hip pastors who would love to be bivocational. Like Paul. Bivocational means that they have job or they have a special technique about uh, creating some kind of a software or uh, they could continually work part-time but enough support from, from that part-time job because a highly skilled one or not. Research, who knows? Their motive bothers me. It's not for Christ. It's for them to Treated to be treated right by the church because you are not employed by the church. You could insist your rights. You better respect me. I don't have to do this kind of attitude. That's not Paul. For those guys and majority of us to humbly surrender to be taken care of by the church is God's way. Being Focused and paying attention fully to the flock. To lose some sleep overnight because of you're worrying about the people who are going through a tough time. Who are stricken by the, by the trials and family conflicts. Rocky marriages. Drifting away from God. All things to all people. You know why I come to my mind? Hudson Taylor. Some of you guys never heard the name, but some of you actually heard a little bit about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is a first missionary who took this idea, what Paul is saying. I think his own expression was incarnational ministry. The fancy missiological word is contextualization. Instead of typical Western missionaries going to China, what they did is they made sure they live around the shore instead of inland. So if something happens, they could take off. It's safe there. And they will find the highest hill and build a Western house. It's uncomfortable to Sleep on the floor, you know, things. Hudson Taylor probably read this passage and convicted, and he's, he's preparing by learning Mandarin, by eating, practicing eating rice. And as a white man from England, he started wearing, before he went to China, Chinese clothes. And by the time when he landed and he worked, his Chinese was fluent. And his children was being sent. His, his wife died of, out of disease. Even all that. So he founded the China Inland Mission, CIM, which later became the worldwide movement is OMF, Overseas Missionaries Fellowship. I have a lot of friends who are in Thailand, who are in China, as a missionary from OMF. The same concept is that. Okay, I'm going to conclude with this, so bear with me. I'm not asking you to go out to mission field overseas, but I am asking you to give up your rights. I'm challenging each one of us to give up our rights. For the sake of gospel in this locale, become concerned about those whom Christ died for and whose 
making Christ's heart ache. To them, we could gladly become a servant for the sake of gospel. These are actual words of Hudson Taylor. I, I uh, sampled it for you. He writes, Perhaps if there were more of that intense distress for souls, souls that leads to tears, we should more frequently see the results we desire. Sometimes it may be that while we are complaining of the hardness of the hearts of those who, those we are seeking to benefit, the hardness of our own hearts and our feeble apprehension of the solemn reality of eternal things may be the true cause of our want of success. And he goes on to say, the use of means ought not to be, not to lessen our faith in God. And our faith in God ought not to hinder our using whatever means he has given us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. No wonder by himself, I think he when 35,000 people, something like that. <laughs> Let me conclude with this, this challenge. Would you think about this? Would you at least think about the, the radical lifestyle that Paul has chosen? And this is actually the best life that he could ever live, the joy that he shared. And then he's going to actually, we're going to actually talk about the reward. Imperishable crown that Jesus has for us, that he is running after. In this hedonistic society that we are looking for only things that make us affluent, comfortable, and pleased. Can we look at Almighty God who is exceeding joy? and actually choose radical discipleship like Paul did. May God be the center of our church, our, our families, and our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Apostle Paul's example. And as we meditate on these principles, we are moved and challenged and convicted. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring this word over and over throughout the week so we might be transformed. We do desire your glory as we pray each Sunday morning to be our supreme concern. And not only on Sundays, but Monday through Saturdays at our work. I teach us to follow this love example for the sake of gospel. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.